Welcome to the Building Texas Business Podcast. Interviews with thought leaders and organizational visionaries from across industry. Join us as we talk about the latest trends, challenges, and growth opportunities to take your business to the next level. The Building Texas Business Podcast is brought to you by Boyer Miller, providing counsel beyond expectations. Find out how we can make a meaningful difference to your business at BoyerMiller.com. And by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Discover more at yourpodcast.team. Now here's your host, Chris Hanslick. In today's episode, you will hear from John Berger. John is the CEO of Sonova Energy, a residential solar company based here in Houston. In this episode, you'll learn why John likens his company to a wireless power company as well as being the Southwest Airlines of solar. John also shares some key fundamentals that any business owner or entrepreneur will benefit from. Good evening. For those of you that I have not met, my name is Chris Hanslick. I'm the chairman of Boyer Miller. I want to welcome you tonight. We thought it would be fun. We started this podcast on June 30th, and we thought uh, it would be fun to try to gather and do one recorded live. And it was actually the, the original plan was to never have a podcast and just do an event like this and interview entrepreneurs and business owners like John. COVID derailed that. And so we decided, hey, why not do a podcast? And you may be wondering, why would a law firm do a podcast? You know, our philosophy is we're entrepreneurs. Our widget just happens to be legal services, but we identify as entrepreneurs. So the idea was every entrepreneur that I've ever represented has a unique and inspiring story. And why not provide a platform for them to tell that? And so that's what we've done. I think we've released 16 episodes since June 30th. And so we decided let's try one live and see what happens. So what could go wrong, right? The, I do want to recognize a few of the former podcast guests that we have with us. Bethany Andell is here somewhere right there. Goran Hogg and Rob Whitman. Rob's still here. There he is in the back. Thank you all for being here. Thank you all for being guinea pigs early on. And we didn't fall on our face. We're still here, at least so far. So for those of you after this, I think this one will, this will be recorded tonight and be released next week. So you'll probably receive an email and it's all, it'll always be on our social media. Uh, channels as well. Hope you not just listen, but like, review, and share it with friends. We appreciate that. So, and I want to give a special thanks to my team that helps put all this on. Josie Morgan, Josie, raise, raise your hand. Andrew Carpenter, and our and our friends at Savage, Heather Mains, and Care somewhere, Care Garland. She's around here somewhere. She's probably still working on something behind the scenes. So thank you all. All right. Well, then um, let's get going. Let's see. All right. I may say it later, but a you know, little background. John and I grew up together in Bryan, Texas. And so we've known each other a long time. Just happenstance that you know, here we are in Houston together. And did Matt Beach come? No. So one of our partners is from Bryan. So Bryan Vikings, we're taking everything over. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, all right. So. John, thanks for being here. I want to welcome you to Building Texas Business, and I appreciate you taking the time to come tonight. Thanks for having me. So, you know, as I mentioned, we're, we're doing this live, so, you know, if you misspeak or, you know, say something you regret, just we're not going to stop and go back over, so be careful, <laughs> all right? And, yeah, and for those of you that are listening, you know, from the recording, if you hear clanging of glasses or something, that's why, because we're recording live for the first time. We're excited about that. John, 
start by just telling us, uh, I know you're the CEO of Sonova Energy. What is Sonova known for? Well, Sonova started out as a really just a, a solar company. And the way to think about us is a wireless power company. So we, through contractors or our dealers, would go up and sign customers, homeowners, to long-term solar contracts. And we'd finance the solar panels, the inverters, and so forth to be installed in the homes. And we would finance those under a lease, a power purchase agreement, which is paying uh, per kilowatt hour like you're used to doing with the utility, retail electric providers here in this market, uh, or a loan. And uh, what's happened uh, since then, and uh, we were at the breakfast a couple of years ago, Steve and I were talking about this earlier, about the all the what we talked about, the future happening, the, the future has happened. And right now we're selling along with the solar and signing folks up. We're also installing batteries. So many of you also know about the Tesla Powerwall Nobody buys more power walls in the world than, than Sonova. And uh, we're now adding EV charging. We're looking to add generators with Generax, another a partner of ours, and then load managers. And there's a lot of other things. If it's energy in the home, we will incorporate it into our service and then sell that to the customer. So now I, I announced on our earnings call about a week ago, we're going to have within 24-hour response. So we're moving towards like we are a wireless utility. And we have a very big service territory. We span from near Japan, Guam and Saipan, if any of y'all know where that is, in the middle of the Pacific, and then all the way through Hawaii, California, Texas, Puerto Rico, and the Caribbean, and as far north as Massachusetts. So we're in about 33 states in U.S. territories right now with Lincoln B and uh roughly about 53 by the end of next year. So pretty much cover the entire United States. So again, you know, more like a, a wireless power company. That's great. So I, I noticed on your LinkedIn today, the company's LinkedIn, you have a pretty major announcement. Uh, you want to share that with everybody? Oh, on the 50,000 yes. new homes? Yes. Yeah, so we bought a business earlier this year with, from uh, Lennar Corporation, which Lennar out of Miami is the nation's largest home builder. Very innovative company. The Stuart Miller is the uh, che- executive chairman there. Very aggressive on new technologies for homes and so forth. And we bought that business uh, from them, and they've become a, a really important partner of ours and looking at new technologies. So you're going to see a lot of really cool things all the way to possibly uh, not having master plan communities even connected into a centralized grid or maybe just on a fail-safe type of, of, of manner. But certainly more and more, you're going to see solar standard as a standard package of new homes, batteries, and all EV charging equipment, everything that I've talked about in these new homes. And we see that, that spreading quite rapidly. So we had 50,000 homes. That was part of the business. And then we've gone ahead and, and grown the business even further. And it's accelerating. And part of that reason for Lennar to sell that business was that it was difficult to get home builders, other home builders, to sign up with them because Lennar is a competitor. So once they you know, separated that business and, and uh, sold it to us, then a lot of other builders came in and said, okay, now you, we love this business. You built it for builders because it was a builder that built it, but now we don't have to worry about sharing our competitive information and all that other stuff. So it's gone pretty well. So basically opened the market up. We opened the market up for us, uh, for sure. Very that, good. That's for sure. So, so that's where you are now. Tell us, just to go back, tell us what inspired you to get into solar in the beginning? Because I know you started at Enron. Yes. Right? Yeah. So, so we can talk about... Anybody the, remember what Enron it, it, was? <laughs> I mean, uh, okay. 
Yeah. So first of all, I didn't work in finance, just to say that. <laughs> uh, and I didn't work on the West Power desk. I worked in the East Power desk. But, it, you know, as Chris said earlier, I, I grew up in Bryan. And uh, you know, when I graduated from A&M with a civil engineering degree, yeah, we, I basically wanted to go into energy. Thought energy was cool. I thought there was going to be, nobody wanted to go into it at that point. It was 1996. And so I thought, you know, that's what I'm going to do. And I thought, of course, energy is oil and gas. And, and I was going to uh, basically go, you know, get a master's in petroleum engineering. And then the, one of the profs said, no, you shouldn't do that. You should take a job with this company called Enron. I was like, I don't even know what that is. So I got interviewed. They gave me an offer. And, and by the way, the woman that recruited me now works and is the lead recruiter at Sonova, which is kind of interesting, <laughs> really fascinating. That's really cool. So she, yeah, I got a job there and I packed all my stuff in the car and came to Houston. I got an apartment at West Creek Apartments, for those of you who remember that, right down the road. And yeah. I thought I was getting shipped off to an oil platform. I got stuck on the hourly trade desk and I worked in nights and weekends, which is what I thought I was trying to avoid by going to college. But <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, uh, you know, the rest is kind of history. But w- one of the things that I was able to do is in 1996, it essentially was running a utility. We were. And uh, I was five weeks off the stage. And I said, I want to go do that. And they said, well, you want to go to Atlanta? And I said, Atlanta, Olympic Games, you're paying for, you know, for everything? I'm like, yeah, I want to go do that. Yeah. So I went there and did that. And and you weren't a, thinking about work. You were just going to go to Atlanta for the Olympics. I was right? going to go for Atlanta, <laughs> the Olympics, run the utility. Exactly. Yeah. And it might, you know, I, I figured the dating scene, I was single at that point, was pretty good, too. So it was, it was all good, a good amount of fun. And what, what ended up happening is it got a, a good appreciation for the physical system and how archaic it was. And it still is, obviously. And I've said this, and we'll talk about it, I'm sure, later, but... I really believe the energy business is the last major industry to undergo and enter the digital age. And that's exactly what's happening with solid state disruption, with, with solar, with batteries and other technologies, software, et cetera, that we're a part of and leading and doing. And I saw the physical limitations of the system and I said, you know what? Something else is going to come. So I left Enron, went to business school, came back, started doing some venture capital. And really stumbled in my first business was energy efficiency. I was a contractor, which is now equivalent for a dealer for me. And I stumbled into solar and I realized, and it was actually another Houston entrepreneur uh, that built a chip business, very successful in the logistics area. And he said, you know what's going to happen to solar modules is, and this is like 2005, they're going to go down in price a lot because it's just chips. That's all it is, just memory chips. That was a radical statement. Most people would say that was crazy, actually nuts. And I thought, you know what? That's actually not nuts. That's exactly what's going to happen. So I started getting more and more into solar, founded the second business after I sold the first. And uh, then from there, knowing my power background, I knew batteries had to be the next thing as well. So that's when we got into batteries. And that's another story with Puerto Rico, Maria, and all that other stuff. But that's how we got into it. Great. That's great stuff. So you built a couple companies, Sonova being the most recent. What are some of the fundamental or foundational elements that you have tried to establish in those? And maybe they've been different at different times, but to really set the company up for success from your view, like I've got to have these things in place in order to have the foundation for success. What is that for you? Well, I think first and foremost, you know, you got to have good people. 
And, and every CEO is going to say that, but I think it really also goes down to is that if you try to go cheap on people, you'll end up with nothing and, and sometimes worse than that. So I really am a big proponent of that. I will also say there's a book that's written out there, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. I would recommend for those of you in the entrepreneur. And it, it really goes into detail about how you need different types of people at different stages of the company. And that's really hard for entrepreneurs. You want to know where one of the biggest parts uh, or reasons for failure, it's that. And it's difficult. It's difficult to send somebody along their way that's done so well for you, but they simply cannot grow with the business. And candidly, oftentimes, that at the top of that list is the entrepreneur. And this right. is what happens with private equity. Venture capital comes in. They tap you on the shoulder. How would you like to be on the board instead? And really appreciate you going to this level. We got to have somebody take it to the next level and all that kind of stuff. And so I've surrounded myself with mentors, with folks that basically told me what, you know, I, maybe I didn't want to hear and kept pushing me to grow over a period of time. So I think it's the first one is people, including yourself. And the second is focus. And I've seen that, you know, I, I had that problem in my first business. I learned the lessons and it, it really, it sounds like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll do that. But when you get into it, you'd be amazed at how many respected entrepreneurs, investors, and so forth don't really apply that. And they start doing a lot of different things. And then what ends up happening is the third one is don't run out of money. Great advice, right? And if you, you lose focus, yeah, use I, I, I <laughs> use it at home. Yes, I absolutely. Uh, and, and I would say that when you start losing focus and you put money in a lot of things, you never make money then that's a big reason why you're going to fail too. So I would say those three. And when you talk about focus, I assume you're talking about focus on kind of your core business, you know, and not getting into tangents or being careful about what tangents you may get into. And be careful about what you may even see as something that you can add later on, but maybe you shouldn't be doing now because you hadn't really gotten enough or perfected enough or got it built up big enough to scale your costs or whatever. So I always said Sonova is kind of like the Southwest Airlines of solar. We did, we're going to run back and forth between Dallas and Houston. Then we're going to add San Antonio. Someday, years down the road, will be international. Now, we hope to compress some of that uh, timeline, but that's basically a lot of what we've done. We've said no to a lot of exciting things, and a lot of our competitors who are no longer with us, mostly California firms and so forth, uh, they tried to go big right away and, and it didn't make it. So easy to talk about successes, right? And, and you certainly had your share. Let's talk about setbacks. I know you, you've certainly encountered those as well. What are some of the maybe one or two big setbacks that you've encountered along the way and how has that shaped you maybe as a leader and how, and if it related to Sonova or maybe before Sonova, how did it uh, shape what you're doing today at Sonova? Yeah, I think, you know, first, is the collapse of Enron did have an impact on me. You know, you can imagine going from, I was on the East Power Trade Desk. It was the, it was the best company out there that many thought, certainly one of the best in the economy. You know, certainly most thought was the best in Houston. And I did pretty well there. Ran, you know, an entire desk and so forth at a very young age. And then to have that collapse, and not just collapse, but collapse into a point where something on your resume went from really good they're really bad, right? And and did you ever uh, take it off your resume? 
No, you know, I, I, that's a lot of us that, that work there. I can, you know, I even, I saw somebody the other day, a good friend, and, and I noticed he had all the work experience and that was left off. Interesting. And, uh, you know, I don't fault anybody for that. It's still an issue, but I think that's much more about a lot of us have been successful. And I think it's, uh, uh, very unfortunate, set back the entire energy industry from change because change became a dirty word in the energy business, it, synonymous with corruption, failure, et cetera. And I think some of that was probably, you know, was, was overblown. I don't know. I, mean, I really never got into as far as I think the company was just simply overlevered and came into a really bad time. And so a lot of that overleverage is I was convinced that the management team didn't really understand how overlevered the company was. And so a couple of things I, I pull from that. One, I don't like financial engineering. And I've always looked at, even when you do non-GAAP metrics, what's intellectually honest. Don't try to craft it to make it to where something with the analysts will, will like it or the public. You know, Sonova's a public company. The last it took it public a little under two and a half years ago. But what's intellectually honest? You'd be surprised. I was shocked after taking company public. How many CEOs and management teams don't do that? How many go the other way? And then leverage. And so you'll see, you know, me focused on cash flow, long-term cash flows. We have right now, as of last quarter, we obviously have more now because uh, we're well into the fourth quarter, but we have near $7.5 billion of contracted cash flow and $330 million a year for the next 22.4 years. And uh, that is properly levered. And we always look at how do we delever the company. And so that's been a big lesson for me. The other one is that I failed. You know, my biggest failure in my career was I tried to build a biodiesel plant in Galveston. And it, it failed miserably. It eventually went into bankruptcy. I, I wasn't, you know, there at that time it went, but it was definitely my fault. And uh, a lot of hubris as far as you think you can do something like that, like how hard could this be? By the way, if you hear this in the board, two sayings in a board meeting, like run for the hills. First is, you know, you know, how hard could this be? <laughs> and the second is, you know, is that, you know, you know, we can make, the, you know, we can make this, you know, how, we, we can just put some money on it. We can make this happen, right? It's just, it's, it's underestimating and, and really not being a, a humble as far as, you know, there's a lot that could go wrong. And, uh, and I didn't understand that, never built a refinery before and so forth. And, and I failed in that. And it was really predicated on government incentives too, that went away at the same time. So really exacerbated the situation. So I always wanted something that it, it, it was going to become economic by itself. Yeah. Now that's, uh, those are good points, especially when you talk about the comments of the board. I think about anytime someone says, Oh, it's a layup. You're like, no, 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 no. There's no layups, yeah. right? There, it's a no-brainer. So I guess the Enron situation, though, you were able to learn some things that you, know, you weren't at the, the top, so it didn't burn you, but you were able to observe and, and probably some of the best learning you could have gotten. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I think so. I mean, I learned a lot there. And, I, you know, this may sound weird, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change it at all. I learned, I learned quite a lot. I learned, I met a lot of good people. They're still friends to this day. And, and a lot of those friends have been very successful. And, uh, you know, I think that, again, I think it was most, one of the most unfortunate uh, events, really, that I think the city has had. And, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, there are some things to learn. I just spelled those out on the finance side and so forth. But the business itself, you know, could have done uh, really well. I think it was on the right path. It's just, you know, some people and events got in the way. Right. 
So kind of turning back to Sonova, you know, I've, if you can maybe, I have to believe there are a number of things you could share with us, but I want to talk about innovation. What is it that you believe that you're doing there or have done that's innovative? Because probably the company in and of itself could be described as innovative, right? So how do you answer that question? Well, I think, you know, first it, it's the, it's how we're going to market with dealers. Now, one of the other things that you never want to hear in a board meeting is it's different this time. And, you know, it's different technology, but it's not different this time as far as business models and everything else. And so when you look at what we've done in terms of going through local contractors or our dealers, that was radical. I mean, I got the battle scars to prove it where there was a lot of folks on Wall Street, Solar City, which became part of Tesla. You know, the, my competitor today, Sunrun, publicly traded company that no, this is the way you need to have those contractors on balance sheet. And I think for this crowd, my belief in the dealer model was forged by two things. One, the dealer model is dominant in the U.S. cellular market. So, in fact, one of my board members is the largest AT&T dealer in the country. And uh, so a lot of those stores are not AT&T owned. Right. Those are not AT&T employees. By the way, that Amazon truck driver you know, chances are he doesn't work for Amazon. The FedEx guy does not work for FedEx. There's a lot of ways that you think that you're dealing with a company, but you're really dealing with an entrepreneur or somebody that works directly for an entrepreneur in a small organization. Reason for that is the same reason why restaurants use franchise models and so forth is you want to harness that power of the entrepreneur. And true entrepreneurs, you can never hire them. Never. And that's who that, that man or woman is who you want. Right. And so what I figured out was being one, I was like, that's what I want to do. And you can't put it on a spreadsheet and it drives the, the finance guys and women crazy because it's like, well, we could make this money. And I'm like, no, it's not really there. And they're like, what are you talking about? I said, because when you get down in there and you start trying to run 10,000, 2,000 people, like we have in our network right now, dealer network, probably 20,000 people. I can't run 20,000 people efficiently from Houston. That's arrogant to think that. But yet, a lot of folks out there, including to this day, still believe they can do it. You can't. That local entrepreneur in that area is something that really gives you a lot of, of competitive edge to it, even though you're giving out a margin for it. And so that was the first innovation. And now the dealer model dominates the residential solar industry. The second is, you know, and we're always, by the way, looking at how do we have software to, to basically make that more efficient for the dealer and then for the customer. The second one was really how do you take finance and enable it, it to make it easier for consumers to sign up? And what we did was on top of that, we commoditized our own financing. So a lot of people would fail, you know, companies would say, I think leases are the way to go and loans are for idiots. And the loan guys would come in and say, Loans are really the way to go and leases are, you know, the devil's product. They're evil. <laughs> and I said, well, why don't, why do you care? It's just a contract. You don't understand contracts. Right. It's just a contract. And why don't you just put service in there that we're supposed to serve the customer, fix the problems, deal with the billing issues. When you sell the home, transfer the, you know, the contract. And whether it's a loan or lease, it doesn't matter. Make your, make it agnostic. That was a big deal. And I didn't fully appreciate it till recently. What we always did, we, uh, we also did was 
we put grid services, which is basically the right to aggregate all these customers and then be able to sell capacity back into the utility system like ERCOT and so forth, which I think everybody knows ERCOT now in February. But yeah, it's a cuss word. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure we'll get to that. But it we did that in loans, and nobody else has done that even since. And so it it was an innovative way of going about market, looking at the world in a completely different fashion. And then now what we're doing is we're saying, no, we're a wireless power company. This is a service sale, just like the utility, just like Centerpoint, and not a product sale. Basically, not an appliance. You go to you know, down to Best Buy or wherever it is you're going to buy an appliance Costco, put it on your roof, doesn't, you know, ever break and everything else. That's not reality. But yet that's a lot of ways that the business in terms of solar was sold and in some cases still is sold. So we looked at it as a service and said, we're going to wrap that with service and then we're going to take it to the next level by giving service within 24 hours or less to customers. So we want to keep the power flowing. That's a major step functional change. It's very innovative, and we've been working down this path for a while, and very basically no one else is following us at this point in time. So I hope that to be the case, and we'll just widen the goal for them. There you go. Well, maybe after your competitors hear this podcast, they might start following. I don't know. I did Uh, give it in the earnings. Yeah, but they probably get more out of the podcast. The earnings report, right? Okay, so that's, you know, fascinating stuff. The other thing that I've noticed, obviously, over the last several months, maybe a year, is your company has received award after award for the type of company it is internally. Best places to work, best places to work for women. I think you got best CEO for women or something like that. I'm not sure what that's about. We won't go into it here. <laughs> but tell us, I mean, all that to me it, you know, is falls under the category of culture. You've been leading companies for a while. So tell us about the culture of Sonova. You know, what did you do to kind of get it going? Because it starts at the top as we know, and it has to then go top down and, and be, you know, lived consistently every day. So how would you describe that culture? What did you do to get it going? And what do you do to keep, sustain it? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, first and foremost, Houston is a big reason for our success. And I, and I know the natural response, and believe me, I've lived it, and you know that over the years, is being in Houston and you start a solar company, What's wrong with you? Right. What, how, how did that happen? You got laughed right? at a lot. You got laughed a lot. You know, one time we were, my wife and I were going to, and she was off like, uh, talking to friends, and this guy came, came up to me, and he goes, and we're at a you know, social function, and he goes, you are working solar, right? I said, yes. And he goes, you have four kids, right? I said, yeah. He goes, do you need a job? And I was like, <laughs> And, it, it, and I said, no, I'm, I'm good, but no, no. And, and, but I, you know, Houston, one of the things that really attracted me, not only just being down the road from Brian, you know, low cost, of, of course, and still is, really is now, especially even if you just go down to, you know, Austin, right? We've talked about that with real estate prices and everything else that's going crazy, but it's the people. Again, going back to the people, this is the most diverse city in the United States, And part of our success, and I can point to it, not just talk it, wax philosophical, was that this was a diverse workforce. And I remember the day when I was walking past our contact center, which was literally the the, the sides of this stage cut in half with people sitting on stools that, of course, I got in with a sublease. And she was talking Spanish, 
And I recognized, I could just feel the conversation was easier. And I said, wait a minute, anybody else talk Spanish in, in residential solar? And like, no. And I said, we're going to hire more of those. <laughs> we hired, and then we moved into Puerto Rico when no one else would go into Puerto Rico. Why? Didn't speak Spanish. Puerto Rico is not a state, you know? And uh, I would say that our business took off. We had a Spanish lease contract, Spanish PPA contract, and our business took off. And to this day, it is our biggest um, area of, one of our biggest areas is Puerto Rico. And, and then that's spread across the southwestern United States and so forth. And then we've had folks come in at, to speak Vietnamese. It's a bunch of different ethnicities. And I have a fundamental view. And I didn't really, frankly, I just took it for granted. I just thought everybody was like this. And now it's become something that we all talk about in terms of diversity and so forth is I've just a, very much of a view of capitalism is best done when you say, hey, look, you know, if you do a great job, I don't care what color you are. I don't care what God you play, pray to. I don't care about, you know, where you're from and, and all this other stuff and what sex you are, orientation or anything else. If you're doing a great job, that's awesome. Yeah. And that's what we wanted to do. And we set that up deliberately. And over the years, I've come to realize that's probably somewhat unique. And so right now, and to me, it was just the right thing to do. And if you didn't treat people with respect, you're out of there. And this is the way we built it from the day one. And now we have only about, I want to say about 26, maybe 28% of our uh, employee base is, is white. And the rest are I think actually now Hispanics about to be our largest demographic base. Yeah. And everybody in our contact center is bilingual, or most of the vast majority of the bi are bilingual. And so we continue to push diversity. We've got now a, a fairly diverse board. You know, I didn't get a, you don't get to choose when private equity comes in who sits on your board. I had explained that in a town hall, by the way. <laughs> you know, why doesn't, why doesn't the board look like us, you know, boss? And I was like, good point. Let me tell you about the golden rule and they doing to others. And now that, you know, we made great <clears throat> strides in there. We're making good, you know, great strides in the executive leadership team and, and promoting women, you know, we, and, and minorities. We've been, had a recent addition even in our running HR. So, it's something that's just a part of us and a part of our DNA, and it goes directly. I'm just so such a firm believer. Diversity is the, one of the key reasons, if not the top reason, that we're successful. Well, you, you mentioned something about Houston that I've said for years, and that is I, my experience in Houston is if, if you will do what you say you're going to do, work hard, get the job done, people don't care where you're from or who you are. They'll give you an opportunity. They'll give you a chance, and it sounds like that's been your experience. Absolutely. It's a meritocracy. Yeah. And I, I will say this, you know, usually pointing one out and we've never had a crowd before in the podcast, but Peter Beard from Greater Houston Partnership just loved what you said about Houston. Right, Peter? <laughs> so let's, it's been a challenging 18 months. I want to talk about you know, that pandemic and I guess two things that maybe have been significant events for your business, the pandemic being one and then the freeze earlier this year in Houston. You know, how have those impacted or changed things that, uh, for you in Sonova? Well, I think, you know, the pandemic, our lives are, all of our lives are different. And, and uh, you know, when it first hit, I was like any other CEO, I was sitting there trying to figure out how I just may, you know, keep the company out of bankruptcy and, uh, and trying to pull everybody together, but you couldn't physically pull them together. And so I went and we had 
what at that point in time we thought were it was unique. You're trying to figure out the Zoom thing and all that and the video calls and try to communicate, over communicate with folks. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. We got to, we got to focus. We got to keep moving forward, whatever that means. And I came into the office with, you know, three people and stayed there just so people could see in my mind, the captain doesn't leave the ship. And, and so I stayed there, but everybody else had to be away, right? That, that was, that was part of it. And that, I think really helped, you know, was, was instrumental in us moving forward and getting the business moving again. And it picked up pretty quickly, actually. And part of it, and this was a, this is a fundamental change that's never going to go back, is that people said, you know what? I can work from home. I call it work from anywhere. I think we all do. Right. And you know what? Because it's an electronic medium that I'm now over on terms of the Zoom call, the team call, whatever you're using, I can't have the power go out even for a few seconds. So it fundamentally changed our business. You know, there's some Generax, another equipment partner of ours, along with Tesla and a couple of others and, and, and several others. And the CEO there calls it home as a sanctuary. And, and that's right. And it fundamentally shifted our business. And it, it battery sales took off even faster uh, than it ever had before. To, so much to the point, we're just now starting to see the glimpse of the end with all the supply chain problems and everything else that battery supply is even close to meeting our demand. And so it fundamentally shifted our business to much more of reliability and so forth. And I would also say that we also, well, let me give you a, a quick story. So when I was buying the business from Lennar, I was in that first week in January, and we had three office regions, Southern California, Denver, and Miami. We do that today. And I was going in and doing due diligence and meeting with the senior employees and I found it interesting, and we talked about this. The question that they asked me wasn't, do I have a job? They didn't ask me that. They didn't ask me, you know, what are you going to pay me? You're going to pay me the same, less, whatever. They said, do we have to come into the office? Right. And this is the first week of January, and I'm sitting there going, after about the, the, the second meeting of that, I said, you know what? Something's going on here. And I don't care what Jamie Dimon says and Apple and, and Google. They're all like, everybody's, you know, get their ears back into the office. I said, no, we're not doing that. Now, is there a challenge with this? Absolutely. And it's a challenge for the employees, a challenge for the management. I think it's a particular challenge for the lower management, middle management of a company like ours. But what we instantly said is, all right, especially some, a lot of other positions like IT development, software development, you can work from anywhere. And that was a huge shot in the arm for us. And we were literally ahead of recruiting on Google, Apple, and so forth, and some of those other, Amazon, et cetera, and some of those big firms. And so that changed, that fundamentally changed the company as well. The winter storm, I was actually closing that Lennar transaction. I said, we're going to go ahead and do it. We had a lot of employees that didn't have power, of course. Of course, I had power, right? Um, you know, and you're on solar, right? At home, uh, I was on solar batteries, <laughs> and I had a generator, and so I was not. Going As a down. side note, he sent a aerial picture of his house that week. <laughs> Just to friends, I did <laughs> not post that. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was glowing. Yes, and I will tell you this: the next, pool was heated, right? It, well, it was lit. But what happened there was I lost, we were remodeling the garage apartment. And so one of the pipes was exposed. And so it burst. And so I was like many of us, I was out without water. And I had to make this major announcement in front of the Zoom cameras and all that. 
literally a few hours later. I remember the story. And, and so what I did was I wanted to make sure my hair was combed and everything else. And I took, I went outside and it was, I think, about 10 <laughs> degrees and I jumped into the pool and then, you know, combed my hair and everything yeah. else. Because polar I had plunge. power, but no water. And polar got, plunge in Houston. Yes, polar plunge in Houston yeah. and got that done. I was looking, like, as they say, never let them see you sweat. So, and, and I, I thought that was a big, interesting, it's a funny story, but pushing forward and, and making certain, you know, making things happen. But what, what, what also a lot of us in Texas took away from this is we can't depend on a centralized system. We need to take matters into our own hands. We need to call, like hopefully call Sonova. I need a generator. I need a generator uh, plus solar plus storage. And most people don't realize they need maybe some load management there to help stretch the battery out. And then you're getting more electric vehicles. You're adding an EV charger. So it really crystallized our business and said, yeah, this is what we're talking about. No, by the way, you know, we had Harvey. We had all the storms. I can't even tax day and all this other stuff. All the unprecedented storms are never going to happen again. Guess what? This climate change stuff's real, and this is going to continue to happen in really uh, weird ways, and this system's not built for this. And the other side of this, as I was mentioning earlier, our demands for reliability of power and energy have gone tremendously up, and the pandemic accelerated that even further. So all this crystallized into a, a, a great, you know, essentially a business case for us and why we exist in our vision for the future of the energy business. So as bad as it was, and, and we certainly didn't welcome that, it really, it really, you know, helped, I think, really a lot of folks around town to understand what we do and why we do it. And this is, this is what the future looks like. That's great. Yeah. Well, you know, lots of innovations come out of unfortunate situations. So this may be one of them as well. So try to wrap a few things up. I mean, I guess we believe that most of the listeners of the podcast, and I think a lot of people that are here are business owners, entrepreneurs. What are one or two things, and, and you may have already hit on them before, but just to, to kind of summarize, if you said, look, here are two or three things that if you're out there and just started a company or thinking about it, dude, you got to do these things. What would those be? What, what's your kind of wisdom for that? Well, I mean, I, you know, we talked about it before, you know, get good people, the focus, don't run out of money. And, and those are, you know, those are very, you know, the, the three main things uh, to do. I think recognizing the business opportunity, I, I don't know quite how to, and I've, you know, I've been asked that a lot, a lot of times. And, and I, I see a lot of other folks starting businesses up. Some make it, frankly, most don't, right? And I don't know how to teach, like, just make sure you have a good business opportunity. But you need that. You need to go out there and try to vet it, do maybe a little bit, talk to enough people, really make sure that it is a good opportunity. But the best, most important thing, never give up. Persistence. Yeah. I mean, there's so many times that I can tell you all that I looked into uh, an abyss and I couldn't figure out how I was going to make payroll in a few days. I couldn't figure out a problem. I even had one, you know, a couple of years ago or so forth. I literally had to get to the top of one of the largest companies in the world. And that was the only guy that was going to be able to solve this problem. And I was like, how the heck do I do that? And I actually, I did it. I pulled it off with some help. I mean, another guy helped me out and get it, got it done. It's just keep going, plan ahead, think ahead of what could go wrong and really take action on that. And part of that is building a balance sheet, making sure you have cash in the bank and so forth, because something will go wrong. 
I don't know what the next bump in the macro environment is. We've had quite a few, haven't we? Mm -hmm. But I just know it's out there and it's coming. And so you be ready for it. So I'm constantly looking at, you know, as Andy Grove said, only the paranoid survive. That's true. Constantly looking ahead. Who's going to eat your lunch? It's, you know, another saying is it's the bus that you don't see, not the one you see that kills you. And that's right. Constantly keep, don't underestimate your opponents. Look ahead, figure out what's going on and then plan for it and then push through because you're always, as many of you know, your previous speakers, I can see some heads nodding. You're always going to have problems. It's up to you. Don't ever quit. That's right. Yes. I love it. Perseverance, persistence. Good, good qualities to have. All right. So as we wrap this up, let's, let's talk about some lighter stuff. Harking back to the Brazos Valley in Bryan, Texas. What was your first job? Oh, uh, let's see. My first job was mowing a yard. All right. Mowing a yard. Yep. Me too. Me yep. too. That's right. And then, then I started selling candy and drinks at school. Okay. It was a football team. <laughs> so, <laughs> Evidently, that was illegal. But the- Coach Green would be proud of us, right? So we're a Texas-based podcast. You're a Texas guy. What's your preference, Tex-Mex or barbecue? Man, that's tough. I think barbecue is tough to beat, though. Okay. All right. Barbecue is tough to beat. Last one. If you could take a sabbatical for a month, where would you go and what would you do? Hmm. You know, my, my wife and I love to travel, and we've taken the kids to a lot of places. We were fortunate to take them over into Asia and to China and tour and then Europe and, and many other places. You know, I would say that I probably would go into you know, Europe and you know the northern countries i'm actually headed there on sunday i like that area and i think there's a lot of promise there as far as building companies in eastern europe and so forth i like there's a lot of promise there and i I would i would take to take some time and just try to figure out that region of the world and what else i could do got it well john i I can't tell you how much i appreciate you coming on and and doing this and and all the wisdom you shared so thanks again thanks thanks for having me chris appreciate it And there we have it, another great episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at boyermiller.com forward slash podcast. And you can find out more about all the ways our firm can help you at boyermiller.com. That's it for this episode. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you next time.